good to um, be with you again, um, and I'm looking forward to recording our very first episode of uh, Cinephils. Um, we've been yeah. talking about this for a while, and um, here we go. Yeah, 2023, new podcast. But yeah, let's get at it. Let's All right, it. so... So I'm plugging this as uh, two uh, um, philosophers who are overworked and underemployed, uh, who also happen to be um, cinephiles. Uh, we've been watching movies all our lives. I grew up with them. My dad taught media studies, and we watched a lot of movies. And I think you have a similar background uh, in, in, in being a cinephile. You've been watching films all your life. Yeah. Uh, I would just add to that that uh, we're also underpaid. <laughs> yes, uh, underpaid as well underemployed i think as well yeah, um, yeah. i uh i well when i was an undergrad i actually uh got a chance to work in the movies for uh, a few years there uh just on the on the crew and then uh that and then before that i worked at blockbuster video back when they had such things and that totally got me into it and then uh yeah it when you're writing a dissertation, it's nice to have a movie going on in the background, I found. So, yeah, it's uh, that's basically my background in this. So, and yeah. um, and we both use films in our courses, uh, I understand. So I, I've been using films for about 20 years when I when I teach to um, raise issues, uh, discuss them with the uh, students. Um, and uh, I, I find it very effective and, and interesting for me. I always find new um, perspectives on the films, um, and our students often raise issues I hadn't considered. Absolutely, and it is such an engaging art form. Like to explain, oh, I don't know, a Cezanne to a student, it might not grab them. Uh, but um, show them a scene from Blade Runner, and they're involved. Uh, yeah, cinema really has this uh, magic quality that uh, as soon as you engage with it. You engage with it actively, uh, like the students, and it it prompts thought. I've I've used them in pretty much every course I've taught. I've uh, referenced, had the students screen one film, um, constantly referencing them. It's I find a really wonderful way to uh, some philosophical views, but it's also just really fun. You know, like that. That's. Uh, yeah. And that's really important. Uh, reading, making the students read. It's like, well, why don't we uh, watch a movie uh, to really bring out uh, what's going on here? I find that really works well. I, I do too. Yeah. And, and so I'm raising my kids to watch movies in a way that, you know, I was raised to watch. And I find too that um, movie watching is sort of a lost art um, that, um, a lot of students uh, haven't haven't really sat for a whole film the way that um, you know you and I grew up doing in theaters. Uh, they watch them on their devices or on their um, or on their computers and whatnot. Uh, so when I when I show movies in my classes, especially lately, I've been you know projecting them with a big projector in, in a dark room, and 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 I get a lot of students who come up to me and say, oh, you know, I really that was immersive and interesting. I never watched a film like that before. Um, and that's something I, I would like, I think we're going to talk about a bit as we do these podcasts. Yeah, like there is absolutely that, like, drive one has like a few inch screen. It's not the same as seeing these figures 
seen Quinlan and Vargas larger than life. Uh, that's uh, an essential part of the cinematic spectacle, and uh, students are students don't get that uh, opportunity. Uh, and also, it is like a public spectacle. Uh, yeah. And uh, when you're watching it on your iPhone with your earbuds in, or at home, uh, punctuated by commercial breaks or not, um, you don't get that whole public sense. Uh, like if if cinema film or collective of the zeitgeist, you know, you need to be in a public sphere to really experience that fully. And uh, it's really important to get students back into the theater uh, or something close to that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so I'm very excited about this series and I, I'm gonna um, uh, first explain a bit about how we're gonna try to do these um, podcasts, how we're gonna try to structure it. So our idea is that um, we're gonna have basically three seg segments per show um, in one segment, we'll discuss the sort of social and cultural milieu for uh, the film we've picked for the week or, or for the podcast. I'm being ambitious if, I, if we do it a weekly. Um, probably um, the best we can do is twice a month. Um, the, the, uh, sec the other seg another segment uh, of the three um, will be about the, the cinematography, uh, production, technical issues, uh, sort of the and this is what I mean by the lost art. When I'm watching films with my family, you know, I, I spend a lot of time boring them with the talking about the lighting and the camera placement and all of the various tricks that go into making a movie. But those things are really essential uh, to film um, and, and account for uh, our experience in film when, when we're, you know, consuming films or watching films. Um, that most people don't understand, I think, uh, these days. And, and it's, it's really, you know, a lot of technical nerds like us uh, are interested in, but it's really important and it helps you to appreciate it. It's like when you're learning to appreciate good music, you, you know, understanding the technical um, aspects is, is, I think, quite essential. And then the final segment we'll do is, is a bit of philosophical discussion too, to bring the philosophy into it. I, th I think we're also going to open it up to listener questions. There'll be a, the opportunity to send voice uh, questions to us, which we'll address uh, in the next episode. Um, and so that's that's our that's the vision we have for how this will go. We'll see how it works. We'll, you know, as philosophers, we're open to uh, criticism and uh, uh, adaptation over time. Not too much criticism, though. <laughs> yeah. 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 Yes, yes, adaptation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I, 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 but at this at this point, yeah, you know, all my sensitivity is out the window. Um, yes. So, um, the first movie we've chosen was actually my my choice, and the other the sort of conceit we're going to do is at the end of each episode, the the person who didn't make the choice will will make the choice for the next episode. Uh, we're hoping our listeners. Uh, uh, decide to watch the film uh, before each episode and and uh, discuss it. So this this week's is a touch of evil, a, a classic Orson Welles um, film, um, and there's plenty to talk about, um, plenty to criticize, plenty to consider, um, uh, and 
Rob, Rob and I have uh, had a little bit of give and take uh, about it already, and we'll see where the conversation goes. Um, uh, so, so Rob, um, the first uh, thing I, I thought we'd talk about is a bit of the cultural milieu, and this is something that that came up in our in our back and forth. Um, you, you had some you had some thoughts about this um, film, which is you know set on the Mexican border in the in the fifties. Yeah, I thought uh, it sort of uh, deals, well, my way into it is uh, like uh, Heston's character uh, of Vargas and uh, why they, why was he in the movie? Why was it uh, Heston? Uh, and how was that portrayed? Uh, because looking at it, a modern eye, it just strikes me that uh, Heston is offensively miscast uh like he's sitting uh seems like uh, a version of blackface to be perfectly honest <laughs> and, um that wouldn't work today <laughs> uh, and this brought up and then you pointed out well heston was uh, a liberal so it wasn't uh or early at that point not not the nra Heston, but the early Heston uh, was liberal, and and that just brought up the notion of how liberalism in the 1950s really confused, how it was really weird, you know, how they thought that to be friendly to racism, uh, no, that's totally wrong, uh, to be anti-racist, they would just say, oh, well, Mexicans or racialized people are essentially like white guys. And I found that, like, that's uh, the attitude. And uh, I can see why they were doing it, but it's it was just interesting to me how much it has changed uh, to from like the late 1950s to uh, 2023 now because now we are in the place where we must celebrate differences. We must recognize uh, racial differences and not be colorblind, not try to make everybody white and say that's a good thing. Um, so I think that's a really interesting I don't think Wells got away uh, in 2023. Um, yeah, yeah. Clearly, I mean, Wells. Wells. I'm not. I don't remember when he did Othello, or. Um, but I, again, you know, the 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 use of blackface in, in Hollywood was was rampant. It was, um, you know, even by liberal uh, uh, filmmakers who, you know, you know, didn't consider themselves racist and were probably less racist than a lot of other people in America at the time, um, or at least, you know, um, uh, you know, less uh, sort of outwardly racist um, um, and, and felt, you know, truly that they were liberal in the, in the sort of broad sense. Um, well, Wells is this, you know, uh, a very typical, I think, of the time uh, uh, in the, you know, very nascent civil rights um, movement and as you said, Heston was 
actually very active in, in the civil rights movement from Hollywood at the time. Um, but then, so were a lot of eventual conservative uh, Hollywood figures. Um, there's a, you know, the, the film was made in 1957. Um, the, the issues that Wells raises are still very, I think, vibrant and, and relevant today, uh, especially these border issues having to do with, you know, the, the tensions between the two cultures. Um, and, and, you know, consider the fact that it, um, the areas uh, in, uh, that Hollywood uh, occupied and uh, were, had been Mexican territories um, uh, on, and are, have large uh, Latin uh, communities, actually. Uh, all of the names of these places are Spanish because uh, of that history. I think Wells was, you know, had the had his heart in the right place, but obviously yeah, it comes across as weird now um, to see Heston, especially in in um, you know dark face, brown face, essentially um, playing this character. Um, yeah, and the and the language, the use of language, I was thinking, um, Heston's intonation, like you bring. Heston's portraying this white guy who went to, uh, I don't know, uh, some upper, some upper university on the East Coast just by his uh, voice. Uh, mm -hmm. And that is really, there is something going on later, I think, with between him and Quinlan, uh, but we'll talk about that in a further section. But I just thought, like even like those first scenes, like it was weird. Like here's here's Heston, a white guy with a Eastern Atlantic accent, wearing brown face, married to this blonde woman who's from Philadelphia. Um, it's it's boring. And first viewing of this film for this podcast. It took. I was. I had to turn it off at some point because it's like I'm not buying this, and if I do buy this, it's going to make me really irritated. Yeah. That it. Yeah, that it took. Uh, like the second viewing, you you kind of get a sense of what was maybe going on there at a deeper level, but it takes the contemporary viewer to get past that. You know because they wouldn't recognize like my students I, i'd have to point out to them how involved heston was involved in uh the civil rights movement they wouldn't have they wouldn't know about that like if if they thought of heston they would think of the nra speech yeah uh if they thought of him at all you know? yeah um right so yeah but anyway i think like i'm I don't want to diss or wells here. I just want to point, point out how our issue, our sense of race has changed. And we're before like 1957, we're going for quality, equality. Whereas now the discussion is all about equity uh, and recognizing 
recognizing the differences and celebrating them. Uh, if you have a Mexican character now in a movie, he or she would have kind. And um, that would be like all the stuff that was in Wakanda forever uh, with a racial racialized uh, I thought. But anyway. Yeah, no, I, you know, so a, a couple of things in defense because because I, I, you know, I I, I think you're absolutely right. That film would have made, been made very differently today, and um, you would have a Mexican um, actor playing the role. Mexican cinema has come a long way since then, too, in becoming more Hollywood. <laughs> uh, so um, at the time, there was a lot of Mexican... I live in Mexico, by the way. Um, so there was a lot of Mexican cinema being made, but it was, didn't get wide distribution. Um, and it was very cheap, and you know, the productions were... Uh, low quality, but there was a you know a huge consumer market here in Mexico for it. Um, so y there wasn't a great deal of uh, interaction between the Mexican filmmaking community and Hollywood at the time, other than you know the many Mexicans who were working in in Hollywood and you know non um, creative roles at the time. Um, but um, I think what what Wells did was disruptive um, and subversive. Uh, he put the, you know, the white guy, uh, the corrupt uh, sheriff who he plays, uh, by the way, brilliantly, um, Quinlan, um, as the, the, the evil character, right, who, who um, you know, taints everything he touches, who, who perverts uh, justice um, and makes this Vargas character, uh, played by uh, Heston, who's, you know, he's supposed to be a Mexican. Um, as the as the lone um, um, heroic figure, uh, uh, the lone ethical figure in the film, and that is subversive for the time. Um, it was, you know, sort of it must have it must have rubbed people strangely at the time. I'm sure, you know, all the white supremacists were up in arms um, uh, uh, and and you know protesting these sorts of films as as they did. Um, so you know, just in in defense of what he was doing, the, again the ideal, uh, the ideals were in the right place, you know. And then Heston finally, I think, um, finds his niche in, the, in my favorite um, uh, of the Heston roles, uh, the the sort of '70s socially conscious sci-fi films like Silent Green, um, Omega Man, um, and. Um, uh, Planet of the Apes, of course, uh, all of which have, you know, um, again, subversive social, socially liberal themes in, in, in various ways, um, but that, you know, put his sort of acting chops uh, where they belong. Um, uh, and one, one other minor, minor uh, bit of defense, in Mexico, there's a great deal of racism too. Uh, so, you know, dark-skinned Mexicans um, end up not taking the the sort of social roles uh, that the lighter skin, very clearly span Spaniard uh, Mexicans um, end up taking. There's a, you know most of the people I, I've worked for blue-eyed, um, tall, uh, uh, white-skinned Mexicans who run um, major uh, bureaucracies here in in Mexico, um, and and you, it's only recently that you find those roles starting to be filled by you know, um, people who don't have Harvard or Yale degrees um, and, you know, Eastern educations and, and 
no Spanish accent. Yes, that, that's very true. Yeah, and I, I agree with 100% that Wells thought he was subversive, and it's, um, he was trying to be. Uh, yeah. he, he wasn't trying to toe any party line with this film whatsoever, or really any film. He was uh, constantly working against the grain. Uh, really a auteur doing yep. something that hadn't been done before. Uh, yeah. Terrific. Well, um, we're going to come back and talk a bit about Wells after, after a, a very short break and um, uh, talk a bit about the cinematography and filmmaking. And um, I'll see you shortly. See you There we go. How are you, Rob? I'm doing great, Dave. All right, let's. I'm doing good. So uh, yeah, um, as we iron out the technical uh, issues uh, and learn podcasting on the fly, we'll uh, we'll have uh, less awkward transitions between segments. Um, but in this segment, I thought we'd uh, move on and talk a bit about how the film was made, sort of the nuts and bolts of it, things that you know people might not know. Um, yeah, we're. I think we're both. Uh, sort of reverent of Wells as a as an auteur. Um, t tell me a bit about your impressions of, of the filmmaking, um, uh, both generally um, by Wells and in, in this movie in particular. Okay, uh, I thought it was amazing. The it was German expressionism. I loved what the shadows were doing in this this whole movie. Uh, I simply it it's a feast for the eyes watching the dance of the shadows which is really totally german expressionism to me and how it is incorporated into this movie which this film noir german expressionism did actually uh was the basis for film noir like uh with fritz lang's doing all his things and Wells is really paying attention to that and developing that. Um, just watching the movie before podcast, uh, John down some notes. The scenes where Wells or Wells, uh, where uh, Vargas is walking with his wife in the hotel downstairs, and it's just like this white, two white banners and uh, figures progressing through the darkness. I could mute this and it would be German. It is so beautiful. Uh, the other thing, the other thing that uh, stood out, uh, those, those final shots, uh, the final scenes, um, well, it's not spoilers, we've all seen them. Uh, Quinlan's death, it, it, that whole sequence, is amazing. Not going to German expressionism here, but the other, it seems that uh, they were talking, well, the, the talking was echoed by, uh, what was that couple movie? Uh, the Conversation. Yeah. Uh, the opening of that, and I thought brilliant. Uh, what they were doing with soundscape there 
and how they were using the voices to guide the camera in uh, that that later that final segment is what struck me as so very very interesting. Uh, what were some things that uh, stood out to you, David? So so Wells loves um, the camera. I mean, he just. Um, knows how to use it. He composes his films like poems um, or epic uh, uh, poems um, because he he can pull you into the scene in a way I think very few directors are able to do. You know, and that I think is, is what he's always striving to do, to bring you right into it. Um, and, you know, he does... He does that expertly in, in um, Citizen Kane. He's learning techniques. He's inventing techniques in that film, which of course everybody has to see at some point. Um, he he you know used the deep focus there to make it feel like you're in the film. Um, you know that deep focus uh, technique uh, filmmakers have been using for quite some time afterward to make you sense that you're in it because you don't have the background blurred out. Um, also, like these opening shots, the opening shot of Citizen Kane is, is just a genius, right? You know, he, he set up the set, he manipulates the scenery so well um, that you, you, just, you just feel like you're pulled, sucked right into the movie. Um, and, and in Touch of Evil, he goes even further, um, I think. His filmmaking is at a peak um, in this film. It's, you know, it's a potboiler film. It's a, it's a noir film it made from a popular novel. Um, and you're right, he borrows heavily from German Expressionism. He sets up these odd angles um, sort of to make you feel uncomfortable. Um, another thing that struck me on viewing it again uh, was just how dynamic it is. You know, there's not a moment in the film until you get to the desert, right? The scene in the desert where you know, she's finally allegedly going to be safe. Um, the Vivian Lake character, um, Vargas's wife. Um, everything is moving. Everything is constantly moving. The camera's moving. The people are moving. The dialogue is moving. And, and you mentioned the conversation, that, that movie. So that, you know, the overlapping uh, sound is also clearly, I think, part of it. So. The, you know, the, the amount of technical skill that goes into editing that into something you can watch and, and understand and, and appreciate is, is remarkable. It's just really top-notch filmmaking. And yeah, Wills is a, a master and he influences so many other filmmakers. You know, I see a lot of, uh, you know, influences that Altman, um, Robert Altman uses with sound design. Um, if you watch a, a Robert Altman film, you can, you, you can notice in Touch of Evil the sort of overlapping, barely audible background audio, you know, um, that's, that's really kind of essential to the feeling of this, dis, this disorientation and, and uh, you know, um, paranoia uh, that Wells is building. Right. And, uh, getting back to the desert scene, mentioned that was amazing especially like you look at what had happened to Vargas's character before leading up to that he was in danger the entire time like the camera's moving 
all around, destabilizing the audience, uh, reframing with basically every shot. Uh, and what is then the desert? She is finally supposed to be. Uh, this is supposed to be the great transition of character. She's uh, out of danger. And then, as it turns out, in the movie, this is like the beginning of her downfall. Uh, terrible things happen thereafter. Almost Alfred Hitchcock psycho like things happen to her after that. And uh, this is a really, and that speaks again to. So Cat, uh, Wells arrests the camera. He stops it moving for those those sequences, and then he destabilizes the viewer because the camera stops moving, and you're and you're like, okay, I can breathe now. Things are going to work. Uh, there's some stability to the universe. Not everything is moving around. Right. This character is out of threat, and as it turns out, the plot, this is the beginning of her descent into hell, essentially. Uh, and I thought that was brilliant, certainly not accidental. Uh, Wells is doing very deliberately, uh, using the camera with the, uh, in an amazing way. Yeah. Yeah, and, and that's what makes cinema... Uh, for me, sort of the ultimate art form is that you're painting with it, uh, you're you're composing with it, um, you are um, using um, both, uh, you know, all of the potential dimensions of storytelling. You know, both time and space, um, and and the and the way that he edits this together. And this, so I, I want to talk a little bit about uh, his his role in making the version we watched um, and, and the editing. Cause uh, the, this film, um, you know, what Wells had a tendency to be a very, he wanted to edit his own films and editing is a, you know, it's, it's, it's the most essential part of filmmaking. Uh, if you talk to any uh, filmmaker, um, editing is where it's all at because you, you get all this raw stuff together and you have to put it in a way that, you know, put it together in a way that makes sense. And that means the visuals and the audio, et cetera. Um, Wells was known for being a very particular uh, editor. He was an auteur. He wanted to have full control. Um, he was taking too long to edit together this film. And, you know, he'd been out of, out of the Hollywood, uh, Hollywood's good graces already for a while. So having this opportunity was important. The studio took it away from him while he was editing it because he was taking too long. Um, and they slapped together a version that he was not happy with. He saw um, you know, a draft of it and he puts together this 58 page memo, which is famous. You can find it, I'll link it somehow to this episode. Um, it's, it's famous for, for, first of all, showing his, the way he thinks about film, um, but also you know, as a sort of blueprint for other uh, directors who want their works to be represented the way they envision them. And, and he doesn't succeed. He doesn't get the studio to make those fixes until uh, 1993, uh, um, when they finally release. Now that they're starting to re-release films that had been made long ago, the studio finally puts it together in a way that is somewhat 
um, um, faithful to what he envisioned. Um, and, it, and in that memo, uh, I don't know if you read it, um, that memo he talks about, you know, the, the, the sound is being so important. Um, and, and that sound design, that really struck me because I hadn't realized that until I read the memo, um, was, was how much he was, in, he was in control of and aware of the way in which the sound and the overlapping music and, and dialogue was going to create this, this um, sense. Um, and the, another thing I wanted to, so I, I, I wanted to get that uh, in there because that's a really important part of film history, but it makes uh, appreciating this film all the more um, uh, uh, remarkable because we have a, you know, a sort of handwritten guide by the, by the director in this case about what he, what he was intending. Yes. And he was so right. Uh, just like directors after the fact have said, have said basically the exact same thing. Like uh, you mentioned, editing is so is so important in Wells was so important for Wells because it's establishing the temporal rhythm of this uh, duration of images, this visual pattern, and uh, like who says that after? Like it's like what is film sculpting in time? Bergman has similar language about this, uh, and so that like he's really tying into something essential here. Godard, even uh, who loved well, uh, was uh, also doing very much the same thing. Uh, some of his whip, and so Wells was really correct here. I think. Yeah. It's strangely, uh, I don't think philosophers uh, have uh, picked up enough uh, with uh, the important sound in the film. Uh, well, you're saying it explicitly in the memo, and like you have Ingarden, uh, Roman Ingarden, who wrote about film twice, and he only talks about sound in the second one little piece that he wrote, uh, and he gives it this marginalized role. Like, and it seems like, yeah, a lot of filmmakers, a lot of philosophers of film don't really dwell enough on that, mm -hmm. uh, which is, they should. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, I, I think, I, again, so... Um, I think of um, uh, um, a lot of you know, Paul Thomas Anderson and, and Robert Altman, who, who obviously have, you know, incorporated sound in, in, in similar ways into their films. I mean, Anderson is very much influenced by, by Altman, but it's clear Altman uh, has taken some cues from people like uh, Wells. Um, and, and sound is, is at least as important as anything visual that's going on. Um, the other thing I thought uh, cinem uh, uh, in the cinematography of this film that was, um, it was blatant, but it, it was effective, was the positioning of the camera in relation to the actors. So at the beginning, you know, Vargas, both Vargas and uh, Quinlan, you know, the camera's looking up at them at this sort of steep angle, which is odd, right? It, 
making them bigger than life in a very obvious way, uh, but also effectively. Um, and, and the lighting is stark too. So you have these steep angles and stark lighting that, that make these people somehow bigger than life. Um, and that shifts over time. So we see those camera angles shift over the course of the film. I, I don't know if you noticed that, mm -hmm. um, but I mean, it was obvious, but it was effective, I think. Um, by the time Quinlan is, is exposed as being this, um, um, this you know, corrupt um, uh, person, uh, we're seeing him from above. And then that death scene, of course, is the final diminution yeah, I think Deleuze uh, mentioned something about this cinema too, where he says Wells conveyed uh, thought of Quinlan and uh, Vargas as higher men in the Nietzschean sense, uh, mm -hmm. above the hoi Nietzsche's hoi polloi, above all of us, uh, operating with their own special morality, uh, according to Deleuze. And you get that from the framings of uh, the figure. They're both, yes, the cameras, though, they are transcendent entities. They're bigger than normal humans. They right. are representatives of something else. Uh, and that's a, a really, it was intentional as well. It's like he does that in his other films too. Uh, right. Kane being the obvious example. Um, and uh, I think that's brilliant uh, to do that. So my son watched a bit of the movie with me, the ending of um, Touch of Evil, um, which, you know, my, my mom, my mom scoffed at. Um, but, you know, it's a pretty tame film um, by today's standards. Um, and, and he was wrapped um, by the visuals. He was just sucked in by the way that um, the frame, uh, the framing of these shots um, made the moral case against Quinlan. So you see in that final scene, we're viewing Quinlan high above, right? And then he's brought way down below. Um, and that's, it, 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 makes, it makes the case, it makes the moral point and Vargas, who's been sort of this subterranean figure throughout that scene, right? Getting the evidence uh, is the one who brings him down with, with Quinlan's own words. It's, it's, a, it's, an, a, it's a very engaging and essential scene, I think, in cinema. Absolutely. Uh, and you refer to Vargas as the subterranean figure. And that's uh, interesting because where was he digging up all the research on uh, Quinlan. What? It's a public library. So those are the yeah. public files. But I thought it was actually like in the un underground. Yeah, yeah. 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 He's underground getting the evidence, right? Yeah. He has to go, It's and that's a sort of Nietzschean thing too. So yeah. Vargas in the, 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 and we can talk about this in the final segment too, this, because we're going to wrap up our filmmaking bet here. Um, but yeah, this is very literally a downgoing uh, yeah. of this character, right? And then his final triumph. It's so Greek, too. Like, you, yeah. like, you know, like, yeah, it's, it's brilliant. Uh, 
this anyway so i hope this gives people uh, some appreciation of the of the, the cinematography uh of these films we're going to try to do do this with each of our films um talk about the the the, uh, the way they're made the technical stuff um because it's actually you know i think really essential to understanding it um and yep. we'll come back shortly and and wrap up with a, a philosophical discussion thanks rob thank you david Hey, Rob, uh, final bit uh, now uh, uh, about the philosophy stuff. Um, so I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to defer to you to start off this discussion, uh, and then I'll chime in if I, I have anything worth saying. Oh, uh, well, you have lots of stuff worth saying. So, um, yeah, I don't, and I don't have much worth saying. <laughs> so... Uh, <laughs> This'll, this'll be hey, by the way, we, did you you had a chapter in one of the Breaking Bad books, right? Yes, I did. Yeah. Okay, so I that's why that's why I think we first met was uh, I edited a uh, uh, one of these popular culture and philosophy books on Breaking Bad and philosophy, and you, you had a fine chapter in that. So yeah, that that, that was mostly uh, Charlene. Uh, it was a co-written chapter and. Uh, I, I yeah, just, I, my wife does all the intelligent work in their family right? too. <laughs> yeah, uh, but yeah. So, what did I think of the philosophy here of uh, Touch of Evil? First of all, there wasn't just one philosophical point in this movie. It's uh, littered with. And uh, the second thing I want to say by preamble is Wells is a philosopher in this uh, movie. He is just uh, telling, uh, relating his philosophy through images and sound, uh, whereas uh, professional philosophers, academic philosophers use words, uh, but he is conveying concepts here. And I thought that was uh, brilliant. So what concept was he, uh, did I find most interesting? And this is cribbed a lot from what Deleuze said, so this isn't me. Um, basic claim is that uh, this film shows that judgment uh, is impossible because there, it diminishes transcendental conditions. Uh, and puts imminence to the fore. Okay, could we put that simply? Yes, we could put it simply. You know, he cares more about uh, a changing circumstance than these sort of ideals he wells. And this is show, so it is a very Nietzschean that I see. Um, quote from Nietzsche that I found. Uh, the real world we also abandoned the world. With the real world, we have also abandoned the world. That's from Twilight of the Eye. What we're doing here is getting rid of this of any sort of idea that reality and replacing use used for judgment and we're replacing it with imminent conditions we 
can see this in um, Quinlan, the very end. He dies in the mud. You know, like, uh, here's this, the law that we, that like in the first, if we are to believe, if we are to believe the opening scenes, he's a great policeman with a wonderful intuition. who is in the mud with the camera looking down at him. Uh, uh, there's better destabilization of this, of this character through the movie. He gets constantly diminished. Um, another aspect. Um, Again, with he has a cane. He's sick. He's uh, recovering all elapsed out by the end of it. Um, Addicted to junk food. Always with a candy bar. Wheezing. Looking sickly throughout what is that for, for Nietzsche that is the aristocrat mm-hmm. uh, like these, these sick broken vengeful people who created uh, formalized law uh, right. whether that be in church or, or through government and I thought that was Amazing to, to now. There are two major characters, not just Quinlan, it's who is just the formal representation of the law, you know. Uh, and what is interesting in the interaction with these characters uh, amongst each other and the other character constant betrayals mm-hmm. where like Quinlan gets betrayed Vargas gets betrayed uh, by Quinlan um, this just shows that all values that the audience member walked into this thinking or sacrifice uh, are not that we have a lawyer we have a prosecuting attorney taking down a drug gang by doing research underground mm-hmm. uh, I believe illegally wiretapping somebody uh, to extract or assert the law's authority. Uh, some a character who straight up murders somebody. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, this is a destabilization of the law. Then you have Quinlan on the other. This sickly care, this hero at the start of the movie, who is shown to be the most profound villain, and um, that's all I took away from this movie how 
really yeah. it was like I was it or I was watching the movie just like, this is the first two essays of uh, genealogy of morals right here right uh, it was amazing so so I, I think you're spot on in, in that analysis and and um, um, I, I think that there, there's also you know an interesting moral and legal uh, story going on here. Uh, the The story takes place at a border. Borders are interesting philosophically to me. Uh, the border is, you know, at that time, not really well demarcated physically, right? The border between the U.S. and Mexico at the time was 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 almost invisible. You you pass by a um, a checkpoint and that's it, right? Um, and people in the desert didn't even have that. You could just walk wherever you wanted. People were moving in and out of these two countries. Um, uh, there are the, and I think Wells, Wells is making a philosophical point here. This border town is um, exciting and interesting, dangerous, uh, vibrant. So part of what you know, Wells wanted us to sense is as we enter the Mexican side of the border, all this life, all the music and, you know, the gambling in the streets and, 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 and just people and, you know, and, and enjoying life in a way that in the sort of uh, experience, most of the people living in, you know, sort of waspy uh, Americans were experiencing at the time was very staid and, and different. So the border is a is a, I think an important um, um, uh, point about you know this possibility the possibility for uh, a new culture uh, uh, new experiences uh, the um, uh, Vargas's wife right uh, who who ends up being a huge um, uh, sort of moral uh, support for Vargas a, a grounding for him. Um, is going to go live in Mexico. She's moving to Mexico. She's going to become Mexican. Um, and, and, and this fluidity of culture, fluidity uh, of movement, uh, and fluidity, fluidity of ideas, I think, is, is expressed in this film in a way that, you know, I couldn't write an essay uh, that would capture it, but this film does. And I, I believe that's part of um, what Wells is trying to Wells is trying to say that, you know, borders and, and are, you know, opportunities, they're possibilities, they're not, you know, um, they're not uh, meant to hold us back, um, and they should be passed, and they should be uh, transgressed. Um, and the transgression, right, happens in many different ways, too. So um, the, the sort of corrupting um, uh, American uh, junk food and, you know, uh, um, alcoholic uh, uh, addict uh, uh, in Quinlan, right, goes to Mexico and kind of gets healed. Um, this, uh, the woman, um, uh, the actress Marlene Dietrich is in this, playing this um, soothsayer who, who helps him. Who, who saves him more than once, obviously, before, you know, before the action of the film, she had saved him before. Um, it's, a, it's a healing and, 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 and recovering 
uh, period for him the first time he goes there and this time he's there to be saved again and she fails in some way. Um, so you see these interactions of, of types of culture and you see these um, transgressions and they, and they can be healing and, and, and they can be undermining too. Um, as for the, the sort of moral, it's a morally ambiguous tale, of course, as most noir uh, films are. I mean, we're supposed to see who the good guy is, but Vargas uh, defeats Quinlan in a very unsatisfying way. I mean, Quinlan dies. That's not what we want to see. You don't see justice in that death. Um, so um, the, the, the big sort of message that I would use in my sort of 101 philosophy of law class is that when you don't have um, adherence to the rule of law, you have a breakdown of civil order. And that's what's going on with Quinlan. That's what's happened to this town that he's been running in this sort of perverted, corrupt way, um, getting convictions, but not the right way, um, building himself up while tearing down others, you know, using his, his own background and, and the racism it's helped to inspire in him or grow in him uh, to exact some sort of racial vengeance. All of that is a breakdown of the rule of law. Now, you know, any good Nietzschean knows the rule of law is part of the problem. <laughs> uh, but I, I think that, you know, this is, there's a very sort of, on one level, a very superficial um, morality tale lesson uh, from, from that as well. Absolutely. And what you said, I agree with completely. I, um, mentioning Marlene Dietrich's character, it's interesting how, like, she's throughout the movie, but uh, the big stuff seems from, uh, in the first hour, if I remember it correctly, uh, where Quinlan, uh, she foreshadows his death completely uh, in their conversation. He goes and asks her for a bowl of chili he it, in their first conversation and she goes i used to give that to you but it's too hot for you now to handle and forget any double or triple entendres that might be involved in that exchange uh but you know it's like he's seeking redemption <laughs> and she says can't handle the only way you can get rid of is to die in the mud. Uh, and I thought that was really interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, that was uh, an amazing point. Uh, yeah, so that was... Uh, another thing that when you were speaking, what do you think of the rules of uh, all the powers? Uh, like it's exterior shot in this movie without there being oil towers mm -hmm. in the background. Um, and um, particularly in the board. Right. Um, and I'm just wondering, like, what are your thoughts? Like, yeah. So I, I think that, you know, th that's an excellent point. So the, the, the scenery and the geography here are expressing uh, a moral point as well. Um, there, there is no safety in the derricks. 
There's no safety in the steel girders. There's no safety in these oil towers. Um, the the land has been corrupted by them, just as um, you know Quinlan corrupts everything he touches. Um, Quinlan dies among them, um, and then uh, you know this whole this whole um, uh, this whole expository ending um, it takes place there. Uh, it's foreshadowed early in the film. Again, we're given and this is part of the structure of the 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 um, film as well. So we're given a reprieve only, again, when we're in the desert, in the nature where it's quiet, it's calm, until, of course, all these forces come in and threaten um, uh, uh, Vargas's fiance. Uh, or is he, I think she's his wife at this point already. Um, so the, the uh, geography of um, the man-made, right, the artificial, uh, expresses uh, a moral point too, um, and and we're good, that short reprieve is is illusory, right? It's the it's the um, corruption of architecture of human architecture and and technology that um, dominates, um, and there's no chance of of um, of the natural um, um, uh, saving us in, in this film. Um, and and that's you know that's a very common theme I think in 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 um, in a number of films of this style as well architecture and 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 technology uh, um, overshadow uh, the human and the natural. Absolutely, there's a real Marxian point here. Uh, I think that like the architecture, it's architecture of capitalism, like mm -hmm. it specifically architecture designed to, to make money right. by pulling commodities from there. Um, and Quinlan is the character of capitalism. He's a bit mercurial. He will change the rules necessary to, to find success. Um, He's American, um, as opposed to somebody from Mexico. Uh, right. And then Marx's point is like capitalism due to convictions is ultimately going to destroy itself. Uh, it's going to use up the worker and bid it up, destroy them, like 1844 manuscript. And you have at the end of the movie, the, the paradigm of capitalism, Quinlan, yeah. being destroyed. Uh, yeah. Again, and the, yeah. Yeah, it, it works on various levels because that is a sort of very um, superficial, as I said, morality tale of yeah. the film. There's so many other levels. We're going to we're gonna have to wrap it up. And that's, uh, I can't believe we've been, we've already... Um, uh, used up an hour. Um, I could do this for another couple hours, but I don't think listeners want that. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, but yeah, well, they'll, they'll have a whole series. Here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So this is this is a point I've been looking forward to. In the last minute, you get to reveal the film for next week, and I'll watch it, and we'll come back and we'll have another one of these conversations. Meanwhile. We look forward to input from our listeners. Um, you can send little voice messages and we'll try to address them.
All right. Uh, so think long and hard about this. Uh, M. M, excellent. Okay. Yeah. Excellent choice. Um, uh, you want to tell us is that's um, Kat, Kat, um, the director is Fritz Lang. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's German Expressionism, and that's the connection we have here, and you foreshadowed that. So, yeah. all right. Uh, yeah, anything you want to say to uh, us about it before I we just, uh, watching Touch of Evil and all the shadow work um, reminded me so much of M, and of, like, this is what we have to talk about next. And then all the morality uh, that you so eloquently elaborated here. This is this is going to be continued in M. Uh, so, yeah, that's what I'd like to talk. About. Excellent. Well, I'm looking forward to that conversation. Well, well, I'll see it as soon as I can, and um, we'll schedule our next podcast. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. Thank you, Rob. Thank you. Thank you to our listening audience. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to this series and I hope you are too. Take care.